The scripture reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 4 through 30. It can be found on page 888 in the Black Bibles. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sakar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. The word of the Lord. Thanks for reading Pam and John and Again, good to see all of you here this morning. My name is John Trapp. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ the King. It's so good to be with you all. Um, one of the things I hope that you know at Christ the King, uh, whether you are someone who identifies as a Christian or, uh, or maybe you're not a Christian or maybe you're not sure you're a Christian or you're not sure you want to be a Christian, wherever you are on that spectrum, you really are welcome here. 
And one of the things that we hope that this church will be is that this can be a place for you to wrestle with questions that you have about the Bible. Questions such as the one that's kind of sitting before us today. What's God like? I hope that this can be a place where where you can wrestle with questions like that. Uh, One of the things that we said earlier on when we were looking at this sermon series in the book of John is that the best way to know what God is like is to look at Jesus. Jesus is the truth of God enfleshed. He is the word of God made flesh. Later in the book of John, we're gonna see Jesus is having a conversation with one of his disciples, Philip. And Philip says, Jesus, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus' reply is this, Philip, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, Philip, do you wanna know what God the Father is like? Look at me. If you've seen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, it echoes what the author of Hebrews says later in Hebrews 1.3. He says this, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Do you wanna know what God is like? Look at Jesus. So we're gonna do that together this morning. Let's, let's pray and ask that the Lord would help us. Father, we do want to know what you claim to be like. And uh, I confess, we confess that we're quick to doubt. We are quick to doubt that you are good or gracious, but in your kindness, you have given us Jesus so that we might know more of who you are like. By the power of your spirit, Lord, help us now to see Jesus clearly. And it's in his name we pray, amen. So a lot of y'all know I'm from a small town in Alabama called Tuscumbia and went to a really small high school. And kind of because of that, whenever we had a theater production, it was an all hands on deck sort of situation. And usually the whole community would come out to see whatever play we were putting together. I think they probably came because something usually went wrong in our productions. Uh, It was just kind of what was going on on a Friday night. Let's go see the high schoolers ruin some play. So I think it was my senior year, we were doing, uh, we were doing Cinderella. And shockingly, the play was going really well for almost the entire time until we got to that final climactic moment where Cinderella's on the stage and she's waiting for Prince Charming to come through the door and try on the glass slipper. And she proclaimed on the stage, a whole crowd silent, and here he is now. And Prince Charming didn't show up the door didn't open. She said it a little louder the next time. Here he is now. Nothing. Prince Charming wasn't there. So now she's on the stage alone by herself, embarrassed, and just kind of starts freelancing. You know what? I think he's at the neighbor's house. I'm just going to sweep up some more until he gets in it. She does this for like two minutes, which is a long time to be on stage freelancing. And the the crowd begins to realize what's going on. People are starting to laugh and the the play is just getting worse and worse and worse until finally bursting through the door comes Prince Charming and everyone just laughs and they say, you know, afterwards that 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 play was ruined, it was terrible and everyone's telling me that it was terrible because I was Prince Charming and I ruined the play. (laughs) I ruined it. I totally missed my cue. And our, our, our... Theater teachers, small school was running the, the light. He couldn't come back there and tell me to, to go out there to get out on the stage and just miss, miss my cue. And see, that's what happens. That's what can happen when you have a bad lead man in the story. It can ruin, it can ruin 
the story. And I think the woman in this, this true story could relate to the Cinderella on that stage because she has had some bad lead men in her life. And it has left her, like the woman on that stage, alone. It's actually left her in a, in a place of deep shame. And it's actually right there that Jesus meets her. So three things I want you to see this morning. First, who is this woman? Who is she? Second, Jesus' response to her. And then third, so what? Who is she? Jesus' response, so what? So there's a couple things that we find out about her as the apostle John describes this woman to us. And, and the first thing that would have been note to, uh, of note to a first century reader would be that she is a Samaritan woman, which would come with all kinds of baggage for a first century Jew. The, the Samaritans and Jews had all kinds of racial tension that, that dated all the way back to 721 BC. And we actually hear about this in 2 Kings 17.24, it tells us that the Samaritans who were once part of the family of God, part of Israel, they intermarried with five surrounding nations. And the reason they weren't supposed to do that is because God knew what they ended up doing would happen, that they would begin worshiping the gods of the other nations. And that's exactly what they did. And so to the, the other Jews in that area, they looked at the Samaritans as dirty, as traitors, as kind of irreligious people that they wanted to keep a distance from. In fact, the, I hope you saw the, the woman is surprised that Jesus approaches her. You see in verse nine, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? So she would be an outcast to the Jewish people, but not only to the Jewish people, she, in fact, she's actually an outcast to her own people. And, and John gives us clues that a first century reader would have, they would have noted about this woman. And it's mainly in verse six that she's getting water at a very strange time of day for someone to go get water. She's getting water during the sixth hour. Anyone living in the first century in a desert-like climate would have gotten that that is a weird time to go get water. The sixth hour of the day, they measured their time from sunrise. So that would have been you know, six hours after sunrise, probably around noon. In a desert-like setting, it's hot. It's not a time when people would want to take a long walking journey outside of their village to a well to gather heavy water and then to bring back. The reason that she's doing that is because no one wants to be with her. Typically, culturally, in that setting, all the women of the village would go in the morning time, during the first hour, when it's still cool in the day. And they would go and do that. And imagine doing that. You had to do that every day. You didn't have a sink. You had to get water every day. Imagine the community that would develop around that. Just catching up on life. How, to, how, how are y'all doing? What's going on with the kids? You, just, you would catch up and you would be part of this community. She's not in it. She's not in it. And, and the reason likely why, we're not told directly, but I think we can kind of figure out from the context clues the reason why is because she is a pariah in that village because she's had five husbands. And imagine, it's easy, if, if you are familiar with this story, it's kind of easy to sterilize the Bible sometimes, be like, oh yeah, Samaritan woman, five women. Um, really imagine what it was like for her. Really imagine what it was like for her living in a small town, a small 
religious town where everybody knows each other's business, where every single day she doesn't get to be part of that group who's going to get water. Every single day she's walking through the village and she probably hears people muttering under their breath about her. She probably experiences showing up to the store and no one wanting to make eye contact with her. Like if she showed up to your kid's open house at the school, you probably wouldn't want to make eye contact with her. You'd probably be looking for someone else, one of your friends to go and talk to because she's that person. She's that person that nobody wants to be around because she's got all that junk in her life and everybody knows about it. That's who this woman is. She's an outcast. And y'all, I think one of the reasons that John puts her in this story and puts her in his gospel about who Jesus is is because she's us. She's like we are. We are outcasts to God. The apostle Paul goes on um, later in Romans 3 to describe our relationship to God. He says this, as it is written, this is apart from Christ, as it is written, none is righteous. No one's righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That is outcast language. No one does good. We have become worthless, he says. That's outcast language. No one seeks for God. But the reality is all of us, every single one of us, are seeking for something. And that's this woman. That's why she's at the well. She's thirsty. And all of us are thirsty like her, desperate for something to satisfy us. And friends, wherever your hope for satisfaction is, that's, that's what will have your heart. And whatever has your heart is what you worship. It's why Jesus gets to the heart of the matter in, in, in verse 13, he says, he addresses her thirst. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. This is the, prob- this is the problem that we face in our lives, that we're constantly thirsting over and over again. And this is true with anything that we would worship aside from the living God. If we worship possessions, success, or what even seems to be the case with this woman, worshiping relationships, what happens is that we see that they leave us empty and still thirsty, just like this woman. And I also want you to see that whatever it is that you are seeking to fill you, to quench your thirst, whatever God that you are kind of making to, to satisfy you, that God actually will punish you when you fail it. There's um, an author whose name was David Foster Wallace, who's a Pulitzer nominated author. He was also an atheist. And I want you to remember that while I read this quote that he gave at a commencement speech at Kenyon College years ago entitled, This is Water. This is an atheist, Pulitzer-nominated writer. He says this, there is no such thing as not worshiping. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And then he goes on later to say, if you worship money and things, if they are where you find real meaning in life, then you will never feel you have enough. Do you hear how that idol, that God is punishing you? If you worship money, you'll never feel like you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million small deaths before your life ends. Worship power. 
and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling like a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. This is what our idols do. They promise us satisfaction, they promise us safety, but they deliver emptiness and insecurity. And that's where this woman is. She's thirsty, she's empty, she's insecure, and this is what our gods do to us when we fail them. How do you feel, kids, students, how do you feel when you fail a test? Does the God of academics punish you and tell you that you're a fraud or that you're not enough? Parents, when a child acts out, when a child gets in trouble or struggles in class, does the God of parenting punish you, tell you that you are failing your children? Does the God of parenting mercilessly blame you for every single indiscretion that they have? What about, what about the God of work? How does the God of work treat you when you're overlooked for a promotion or when you make a bad investment? What the God of work does is it tells you that you, you, don't, you just didn't measure up. It tells you that you just didn't work hard enough, you took too much time off with your family and friends, you shouldn't have rested. It tells you to be less human, to become a constantly grinding, working thing. This is what our gods do to us. The things that we worship are ruthless gods. There is only one God who doesn't punish you and doesn't shame you when you fail him, and it's the God in this story. This is who God is. Jesus shows us who God is. Verse 20 always seemed like a little disjointed to me, like maybe the woman was trying to change the subject when Jesus reveals that he knows that she's had all these husbands and that now she's with a man who's not her husband. And she goes from talking about that to, to, seems like she kind of pivots the conversation, like let's talk about like some kind of like, I don't know, cultural stuff. Like where should we worship? Should we worship on this mountain? Should we worship on the mountain that the Jews say we should worship on? What do you think it is, Jesus? But it's interesting because they were already having a worship question, a worship conversation about what she was worshiping. And even if she's trying to change the subject, Jesus isn't going to let her wiggle out of it. And he's drilling down into where she's finding her hope, where she's finding her satisfaction. And what he ultimately says is, hey look, you say the, temple, you say the temple's over there, it's over here, she's saying that. What she doesn't realize is this, the temple is standing right in front of her. In John 1, verse 14, John says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, or enfleshed among us, dwelt among us. The tabernacle was the tent that in the Old Testament was eventually reconstructed to become the temple in Jerusalem. When Jesus predicts his death and resurrection, he just says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. And she's having, she wants to have, have this conversation about where should we worship, over here, over there? And Jesus is standing right before her and this is what he says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father, listen to this, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. This is my second point. I want you to see Jesus' response to her. The Father is seeking after her. Jesus' response to this woman is that he pursues her. He crosses racial borders, he crosses cultural barriers and moral barriers to get to her. And it's totally unexpected, but it's because he's doing what he says his father is doing, which is seeking worshipers. 
seeking to give water to people where they can worship and never be thirsty anymore. It's so unexpected. Did you see the disciples' reaction in verse 27 when they get back? They're on some errand, they get back, and it says, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. What are you doing talking to her, Jesus? They can't believe it. You know, what we said earlier about Romans 3, that, that the Bible reveals to us that all of us are outcasts to God, that no one seeks for God. How then does anyone become a Christian? It's, it's by seeing the way that God responds to people who don't seek after him. What is Jesus doing? He is pursuing her. We're not saved by our pursuit of God. We're saved by God's pursuit of us. Thank the Lord. Jesus is pursuing this woman. And you know what? She's not the person you would expect him to pursue. I, I think John is doing a really interest, interesting comparison and contrast with this woman, this Samaritan woman, and somebody that we met, we talked about two weeks ago, this guy named Nicodemus, who's in the beginning of John chapter three. This is the beginning of John chapter four. Nicodemus is who you would expect God to pursue. Nicodemus is religious. Not only is he like kind of religious, he's a Pharisee. He's somebody who's got great theology, tight, buttoned up. He's, he has got it together. She has terrible theology. Worships at the wrong temple, doesn't know what to do. Nicodemus is a man. She is a woman. Nicodemus has a name. She's a nobody. Doesn't even have a name in the story. Nicodemus comes to her, comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. Jesus is meeting with her in the middle of the day. Do you see the contrast that's being painted here? But there's something else that is different between the two that is so beautiful. Nicodemus is the one who religiously is pursuing and he pursues Jesus. Nicodemus approaches Jesus. But Jesus does the approaching with this woman. Jesus comes up to her. It, it, there's a, in verse four, it says he had to go through Samaria because he was going from Judea to Galilee. If you look at a map, it's like, no, you didn't. It's a straight shot. Judea, Galilee, Samaria is like over there. You didn't, he, didn't, he had to go because he was pursuing her. And you know what else is beautiful? Nicodemus, who you know, we found out later in his story, Nicodemus does come to Christ. Jesus works in his life at his own kind of time and place. But Nicodemus kind of seems to leave his meeting with Jesus confused in John 3. This woman... She is the first person in the book of John that Jesus tells, I'm the Christ. No one gets to hear it before she does. This Samaritan, dirty, messy woman, Jesus had to go and tell her, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one. Jesus, he wants he wants us in all of our messiness. See, we, we think Jesus wants us to be like Nicodemus, to be buttoned up, to bring ourselves cleaned up to him, and then maybe he'll accept us. But what God is showing us that he's like is that he actually wants the real us. This is what he wants his bride to be like. We, we believe that the church is the bride of Christ, 
The apostle John's gonna play with that language and metaphor and imagery all throughout the rest of his writing in the Bible that we are the bride of Christ. And there's all kinds of marital language that's leading up to this story where we are actually being shown what kind of bride does Jesus want. Think about some of the marital imagery that we've already seen in the, in the book of John. John 2, what is Jesus' first miracle? His first miracle is he goes and he fixes the wine problem at the wedding feast. He shows and reveals that he is the ultimate bridegroom. He's the one who really brings the joy to the wedding. And then last week we heard John the Baptist say, as, as Andres was preaching on John 3, when people come to John the Baptist and they say, hey, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Do you remember what John the Baptist says? He says, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. John's saying, I don't have the bride. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. But that begs the question then, okay, well, what's the bride of Christ going to look like? And then John 4, there she is. There she is, alone, ashamed, rejected, and Jesus walks right up to her, the one that nobody wants. There's all these, all these sevens in the book of John. The seven I am statements, the seven signs of Jesus' divinity. John kind of clusters these things in sevens. And think about this woman. She's had five husbands. The man that she is with now is not her husband. And again, it begs the question, will she ever find wholeness and perfection, which is what the number seven represented to the Jewish people, will she ever find that seventh man? And up walks Jesus. He comes up to her, he is the bridegroom, and he asks her a question that is steeped, it's actually steeped in Old Testament love stories. He says, give me a drink of water. And they're sitting at Jacob's well. And I want you to know that in the Old Testament, there are all kinds of people who meet their bride at a well. Moses meets his bride at a well. Isaac meets his bride at a well and the namesake of this well, Jacob. Jacob meets his bride at a well. Listen to how it's described in Genesis 29. Rachel came with her father's sheep for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. That's a pretty bold first move, by the way. <laughs> Kissing and weeping aloud. Someone does that to you, they got it from Jacob. Anyway, Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel and he said to her father, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Jacob meets his beautiful bride at a well and he's willing to work seven years for her. And now, all these years later, here is this Samaritan woman sitting at the same well. She's sitting at the well and up walks Jesus and he begins pursuing her. And what I want you to see is that God is revealing to us more of what he's like, that you don't have to be like Rachel in order for God to pursue you. You don't have to have your life put together like Nicodemus, in order for God to pursue you. The good news of the Bible is that Jesus doesn't just come for the spiritual Cinderella's, he comes for the ugly stepsisters. 
That's who Jesus pursues. He comes for the outcast, for the sinner, for the mess like me and like you. If you don't think that's you, consider again what the Bible is telling you from Romans 3. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. In fact, the most dangerous place to be would be to not think that you need him. To think that you're good without him or to think that somehow you can be good enough to get him to love you. No one seeks for God. We're all unrighteous. But there is so much life, y'all, to be found in really being known by your father, in really being known. There's a story I read from a book called Hide or Seek, where the author tells of um, a little boy named Sam who was 10 years old. Uh, Sam's dad was named John, and they were at their house one Sunday night. John's brother was in town and needed to hop on a computer to um, check his email. He runs upstairs to the playroom where the kid's computer is, types in www. and all of the web history from the playroom computer just kind of spills down and he sees all of these horrible, illicit, vile websites that Sam has been on, their 10-year-old son. He goes and tells his brother, John, these websites have been visited on your computer. And so um, John gets all of his other kids tucked in bed, the younger siblings, and he asks his 10-year-old boy, Sam, to come sit on the couch with him. And then he asks Sam, have you been watching these things? And Sam, he denies, he denies until he finally breaks and begins to weep. And Sam's father, rather than shouting, rather than getting angry, rather than shaming him, he pulls his little boy into his lap. He holds him like his baby and he weeps with him. And Sam spends the next hours weeping and talking with his dad. And in a letter describing this story, listen to how John describes that night. The hour was now 2 a.m. We were both beat and we were still embracing. Instead of disappointment and anger, I felt relief and a deeper love for my son who almost was asleep now in my arms. Once I placed him in his bed, he fell asleep and subsequently woke several times during the next hour, calling out my name to discuss and confess some more. Eventually, he got everything off his chest and finally fell asleep. Y'all, this is a picture of Jesus. He loves you. If you are his, he loves you and he loves to hear you tell the truth about yourself. And he welcomes you to bring all of your shame, all of the truth, all of the guilt that you bring, to bring it to him. And we're given this story to be shown that he's not grossed out or repulsed by our sins so much that he would stop pursuing us. He'll meet you in your porn addiction. He'll meet you in your eating disorder. He'll meet you in your alcoholism. He'll meet you in your cheating. Whatever well that you've gone to, 
whatever well that you've gone to that keeps leaving you thirsty and makes you feel like a reject at the end of it. Whatever well that is, that's actually where Jesus wants to meet you so that he can demonstrate to you that he is for sinners like you and like me. So we're given this story to see what kind of bride does Christ want? This kind of bride. Imagine how that little boy must have felt to be known and loved by his father. Imagine the relief, the joy, the satisfaction. That's what is offered to you in Christ. I want that for y'all. Don't we want to be fully known and loved? The Bible is telling us that God actually, he offers that to us. In verse 15, when she, um, when she asks for water, when she says, okay, give me this water that is, is gonna satisfy me, give, give it to me. Jesus is not, he's not like pulling a fast one on her when he says, go get your five husbands and bring them here. And or the, the other one who's not, like you can kind of read it like that and say, like, is Jesus being harsh with her? He's not. What he's actually doing, he's saying, let's, if you want to actually be satisfied with the real living water, let's talk about the truth of the other wells that you've been going to that have been leaving you so empty and insecure. Let's deal with it. Let's talk about it. I'm not, I already know that you have it and I still walked up to you. Let's deal with it. and be met in it. You can be honest with Jesus about yourself because on the cross, on the cross, Jesus took on all the honest things about his people, about his church, and he became an outcast to God for them. He became an outcast to God so that we wouldn't be, so that anyone who believes in Jesus as their savior would not be an outcast. Jesus became an outcast so that we could be reconciled to God for eternity. And what this does is this actually creates for us a pathway towards vulnerability with God and with each other. Do you see what this woman does at the end of the story? First off, she leaves her water jar in verse 28. It's kind of interesting. Well, she's not thirsty anymore. She leaves her water jar but then in verse 29, she goes back to that village, that village that had rejected her, that village where everyone knew all of her junk. And did you hear what her testimony was? Come and see a man who told me everything that I ever did. If I was in the village, I'd be like, that sounds like a terrifying person. I don't want to meet them. I don't want to meet somebody who knows ev everything that I ever did and he's just going to say it and he knows it, anybody like that would be terrifying if it wasn't Jesus. But you see, Jesus knows everything about us and he loves any who would come to him. He loves sinners. And so my question for you is, is have you brought the real you to Jesus? Or have you been bringing some dressed up version of yourself and are you, aren't you like so tired now of that? Do you feel so empty and thirsty still? 
from all the other gods that you've been looking to to fill you up. This is an invitation to come to the one who can actually give you eternal satisfaction that you were made for because he's for your good and he welcomes us to bring the real true us to him. And because of that, y'all, you know what else we can do? We can be real true us with each other because if, you're, if you say that you are a believer in Jesus, you are acknowledging that you didn't seek after him, that you weren't righteous, that he loved you before you loved him first. And so that means we actually don't need to act like we've got it all put together with each other because God didn't save us because we had it all put together with him. That's why we need each other. We need community. And this is actually a pathway where we can have it when we see the way that God has loved us with his grace. Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for all that you have done and thank you that we can even call you Father. Thank you that you know us and that you are so committed to saving us that you sent your precious son who willingly purchased us with his life and rose victorious from the grave so that in him, in Jesus our Savior, Lord and King, we might find the water that will never leave us thirsty again. So we pray that we would drink deeply from him by the power of your spirit. Amen.